Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Talent Playbook Podcast. My name is Jason Ferrara. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at Outmatch, your host for this podcast. Our podcast focuses on strategies for transforming your world of work. So during each podcast, we'll highlight someone who's transformed their organization or industry in a significant way. So today's guest is Carol Jenkins, the Chief Analytics Officer at Outmatch. So welcome, Carol. Welcome. Thanks, Jason. Yeah. So uh, just quick full disclosure for our listening audience. Right? We work together. We're colleagues. Um, most people don't know that you interviewed me. Ha. Huh for this role. Good so choice. I figured, good choice. <laughs> so I figured now me interviewing you is a little turnaround, right? Great. So that'll be good. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, what I wanted to start with, so we'll ask, we'll ask you uh, several different questions, professional, personal type questions about, about you and, and the world of work in which, in which you're in. But help me understand first, what, what is a chief analytics officer? You know, what does that role do and what do you do at Outmatch? Yeah, well, it's a it's a great title, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think you know more and more as people start using computers and and really analyzing data, um, the world of analytics is becoming more and more important. So, in my role, I've actually been in this role for about two years. Before that, um, I was leading some of the service delivery of using our products with our clients for the past almost twenty years. So, been here for a long time. But um, as a chief analytics officer, what I'm responsible for is really evolving the science. Uh, So how, what we measure in our predictive assessments, how that changes over time, how do we create a better candidate experience over time, um, and then being able to demonstrate the ROI that we provide to our clients when they use our tools. So it is capturing data about candidates, you know, over 20 million candidates, analyzing that data to find out what is most predictive for the business results that they want to see, and then being able to show how our products are working within their business environment and how we can even get better results with them. So you mentioned, um, you use the word science. So help me understand what, what that means. I think that's something we talk about a lot. I, some people may understand that, some people may not. So what do you, what do you mean by science specifically? Yeah, you know, when, when you use predictive assessments, um, you're not directly asking somebody, hey, are you an assertive person, right? That's that's something that is a much more direct measure of maybe somebody's assertiveness level. Well, it's pretty easy for someone if they want a job where assertiveness is important to be able to say, yes, I'm, I'm very assertive. So we try to measure scales or, or personality characteristics or behavioral traits by asking questions that don't appear to be measuring what we're measuring. So we might ask a question like, you know, you're the first one to speak in a meeting, which doesn't necessarily tie back to assertiveness. But when we look at a lot of data and we look at the reliability of our assessments, we want to make sure that certain items all go together. So that's the science side of it. It's it's a little bit technical, but it's basically um, creating specific questions where we can reliably ask things about people um, in a way that is not obvious, um, but at the same time, is related to other measures of that same dimension. So we can say, hey, we're measuring this. It's a reliable tool and it's going to be consistent maybe in in a year when the person retakes the assessment. So it's kind of a, the science has a lot to do with reliability and validity of our assessments. And it comes from the basis of industrial organizational psychology. Okay. So that was my, my, my next follow-up question is how do you, how do you learn about that? Like where, where does someone go and say, okay, well, I'm going to learn the science of asking questions about 
you know, how, how to understand what really motivates people. Yeah. So it's, it is psychology, right? The basis of psychology, but the difference with this field is it's much more um, related around the normal healthy population, right? So we're not trying to diagnose someone. It's and not abnormal to, psych, right? That's right. Yeah. It's not abnormal psych. We, we're not asking about any kind of illnesses or anything like that, but we're really trying to, um, you know, provide a psychometric tool, a tool that actually is doing what it's supposed to be doing um, to capture some of the things that are important to organizations. Um, and really, we also have to understand the organization and what they need and what success looks like so that we can marry both of those things so together. Are you a psychologist? I am a psychologist. And, you know, psychologists have to be licensed. Um, so I've been through a licensing exam and everything. But yeah, I have a, a PhD in, in industrial organizational psychology. Yeah. So how did you how did you get into industrial organizational psychology? Did you, is that what you wanted to be when you were growing up? Or did you, did you, you know, stumble into that? Like, like I got into marketing. <laughs> you know, I love kind of understanding how people tick and, you know, certain um, behaviors people have and what's the underlying beliefs around, you know, things that make them behave in those ways. So I started there um, and never had heard of industrial psychology. When I went to college, my first class was kind of a general psychology class. So I did learn about that field. And it was very, um, it was helpful for me because I love psychology, but I did not want to, I couldn't imagine myself sitting across from people with problems all day. And I am such a fixer that I would want to just say, fix your life. Like, please, please stop coming in and talking to me about this. I'm a psychologist, but I'm going to solve your problems too. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so with industrial psychology, it is, it is again, more of the kind of behaviors you tend to see at work. Um, and it's really helping companies solve talent problems, um, problems or really uh, upgrading talent. Right. And um, I also really envisioned myself even in 10th grade, wearing a suit every day to work and like traveling the world and just working with more of a business uh, population. So yeah, it's weird. I, I had kind of an idea of what I wanted and I didn't really understand what it was until probably my freshman year in college. Okay. Where'd you go to college? University of Southern Mississippi. And did you do your postgraduate work there too and your PhD work there? Well, I went to Northeast Louisiana University in for my undergrad and then I went um, to USM for my PhD. So, I mean, that, that, to me, I, I didn't grow, I didn't grow up wanting to become that and um, I don't, I don't know lots of people who wanted to become that. Is there, is there someone you had that was a, a mentor in your life or your career or your schooling that helped you like round out the edges of your thoughts about psychology or what, how you wanted to, how you wanted to take that education forward? Yeah, I, um, at Northeast, my professor, um, Dr. McGann, I'm still good friends with him to this day. Um, he was, he actually taught abnormal psych. So, um, but extremely interesting, very motivating. And he's the one that really got me engaged into, um, what I needed to do to prepare to get into graduate school okay. and mm -hmm. how to do research. And so I actually worked with him as a research assistant. We got published on a paper together. Um, and we continue to, to, to work on things even, you know, 20 years later. And research is this is somewhat of a softball because I work with you, but research is still a big part of what you do here at Outmatch. So you want to talk about the kind of research that you're still involved yeah. with? Yeah. So because we have so many candidates that come in through our system and we also capture other data about those candidates, like do they turn over, you know, what's their performance like? Um, we want to, it's not as interesting to just say, 
hey, this is what a candidate looks like. We want to know what the good candidates look like. Um, we want to look, we want to understand, you know, what are some commonalities about people who are turning over, um, who are those top performers. And so with all this data, we can occasionally look at, at data that has to do with demographics. Like, so how do women look different than men? How do, you know, millennials look different than other age groups? Um, so we're constantly, you know, poking around in it. And, and you know, one of our, our team members here will do some crazy research uh, and, and look at, you know, those that use certain browsers, are they more likely to perform better on assessments than others? Or at what time of the day are people most applying for jobs? And of those, um, you know, who are the, where, when are the top performers applying? So there's some interesting data that we've looked at that's really kind of out there that's not necessarily related to what we do, but is interesting. Mm -hmm. And um, so not related to what you do, but do, do, I mean, I, I find that stuff interesting because it's quirky little yeah. details, but do clients want to know those sorts of things? I mean, I, talk about what your client conversations are most often like. Yeah, clients want to know a lot about, um, you know, what drives certain candidate experiences. So, you know, if you see in our assessments candidates dropping out of the process, you know, is there anything similar about those folks? Like, when is it that they drop off? Um, you know, what percentage of people drop off? Does it have to do with test length or the test questions? Um, it's it's a really interesting data point when um, people started to convert their systems over to more online mobile optimized solutions. Most of our clients said, you know, just having an assessment online is a barrier for some of our um, kind of uh, um, more of like back of house roles or, or, or roles where you have individuals that maybe aren't as highly educated. Um, and so they were concerned that online assessments would be a barrier for those folks to actually yeah. complete it. What was interesting. Uh, not everybody owns a computer. Not everybody exactly. has a smartphone, that kind of thing. Nobody right? wants to go to the library. And so um, what we found is I that. I love going to the library, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> what we found was that, um, you know, people who um, were actually completing. So once you went online with your assessment, you tended to see tenfold in terms of the number of applicants that would actually come come and complete it because it's more convenient mm -hmm. than walking into a store to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but what was interesting is when we went to mobile, there was such a concern about um, those, those typical, that demographic. And what we found is 40% of those folks actually use a mobile phone. So they were the highest group in terms of mobile usage. It's because they, that's the primary computer that they use. Mm -hmm. So when organizations were really wanting to improve their diversity and really attract candidates from, you know, all different levels, having that mobile optimized solution was really important because it really drove more of those candidates to them. Yeah. So that's a big part of that, that research function, right? Yep. Is understanding all, what's in all that data, yes. not just collecting Correct. all that data. Yeah. So uh, I want to backtrack to, a, to a, a question that's on my list much sooner than this, but I, I thought we'd get there. You've described a lot of different areas and a lot of different pieces of your responsibility. So just describe for me what a day in the life, what a day in the life of you is from mm -hmm. a, from a personal and from a work perspective. Um, so in terms of like what I do just to kind of get focused and ready for work and how I really, um, uh, you know, attack my job every day, I would say it's changed a lot in the past two years because I got a okay. dog. Um, and you know, I, I found that 
um, for me, I, this dog, I'd wake up and, and her name is Coda. She's like right at my, she's sh- like my shadow following me around. Um, she just loves to go on walks. So I probably take about an hour and 15 minutes every morning and sometimes twice a day to just walk her near the trails by my house. There's a ton of woods. And I find that um, that really helps clear my mind. And, you know, either I'm going to listen to Pandora and like just completely check out into music um, or I'll do something more productive. I mean, that is productive because it helps me probably think better the rest of the day. But another thing I might do is like I started to listen to Audible because I'm not a big reader, um, but being able to listen to leadership books and self-improvement because that's part of like leading my team. I need to stay up to date on that. If I can pause you real quick, because I think that's an important point. Everybody says, well, you should read this book. You should have done. Everybody loves to read books, right? So there are alternatives to that. You can get, you can consume that information in in different ways than having to sit down and read it. Yeah, for sure. And with my commute, it totally helps as well. Um, But I feel like this whole process, I've changed my lifestyle to actually include exercise um, every day and probably lost 20 pounds over the past two years and maintained it. And so probably I'm the healthiest of then, which has been great. So it's good to be focused on that. But then once I get on the job, if you want to kind of know what I do, um, I'm the type of person. So I, I really feel like my role is perfectly matched for my personality. And, you know, I know you know me well. So I tend to be pretty high energy. Um, I love variety. And just don't tell me what to do. Give me my freedom, right? That's like, that's all about me. Um, and so that's what my job is like. I have no idea what I'm going to do. I mean, I have on my calendar what I'm going to do, but it's it's varied every day. It's super diverse. You know, I was just in traveling last week, meeting with clients. You know, I might be actually doing a research paper. I might be doing a conference. Um, or I may be learning about the latest technology on machine learning and really understanding a programming language um, called RStudio, which which is insane. And, it, you know, at, at my age, learning a completely new software program, and it's almost like I'm becoming a computer programmer, <laughs> is very difficult. But it's it's you know, interesting to kind of have all these different diverse aspects of my job because it helps me be more strategic when it comes to product innovation. So I'm kind of out there in the research, learning about things. I'm going to conferences. I'm talking to customers. I'm talking to prospects. And that gives me a lot of ideas of how the business is changing in HR and what people are wanting to see um, probably a little bit earlier than others that that don't have that exposure. So let's talk about how you see the business changing or how you see human resources or the human capital functions and companies changing, you know, what are some of the, what are some of the biggest changes I suppose you've seen in, in your career, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I would say, uh, people make a lot, you know, they, they think a lot about millennials and, and, you know, how we have to really kind of change around that. But I think people earlier in their careers all have different expectations. And so you tend to see some similarities there where, where I see the biggest change now, and I keep hearing more and more about this is a lot to do with like the gig economy. So now that Uber has come in and people can be very flexible and choose the hours that they want to work, um, what I've been hearing from you know prospects and customers, especially those that work with hourly populations, is that those team members want flexibility. They want to be able to say, look, I want to work from eight to six or eight, not eight to six, that'd be a long day, eight to three or, you know, nine to two so I can pick up my kids or whatever might be the case. And they could go to Uber and get that flexible schedule. So, you know, with restaurants or retail stores where they have certain set hours to work, they need to be able to figure out how to make that work. How do they staff for those locations um, in a flexible way where they can maintain, you know, retain their, their actual team members. 
So I think that's one of the things. I also think um, so now now another restaurant isn't necessarily the the, the talent competitor. That's right. right. It opens up a world of other competitors. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like if you can get your um, team members to bid on on shifts, right? And so first to bid is first to get. And you know while people need hours, you're going to get get them. But it, it creates a risk and scariness for that manager that wow, what if I don't get somebody for this this shift? So how do you open it more broadly, maybe not just to your particular restaurant, but to the six restaurants around you that all are you know within the same company, right? So that's that's pretty conceptual for for I think most most companies to operationalize. You know what what else in your career just o- over that the, the twenty years that you've been you've been doing this other other big changes because I I think you're right the the gig economy piece of it is and I don't I don't know if if anybody's really figured that out. Um, yeah, it's exciting so. to think about, but I don't know if anybody's figured out what other what other changes have you seen. So I would say the other most significant change is, you know, probably I would say in the late 90s, um, you would see a lot of niche technology providers out there. So you'd have ATS vendors, you'd have performance management vendors, you'd have learning uh, management uh, vendors, you have assessment vendors. So you have all these people that are capturing data in very different silos, um, what we're seeing now is more that consolidation of all those businesses to a platform that lets you integrate this data um, across the employee life cycle. So I, I have data about this person when they're coming in, they're applying for my job. I can understand how they're doing on onboarding. I might get some developmental, you know, what are their strengths and weaknesses? I might get data that tells me when their managers meet with them. So all these different data points, um, maybe their engagement information. And what I'm seeing now is it's because data and businesses are saying, look, why is HR not able to tell me things about who's going to quit, right? Who are my retention risks? And, you know, I care about my top performers. I don't want them to go. So having all this information and all these different uh, nuggets about thousands of people in your organization to be able to kind of analyze that data and look for trends and see what is predicting that um, those people that are leaving, you know, you can, you can informally go do uh, focus groups or you can do exit interviews, but what really are some of those key drivers? And sometimes um, it's, it's invisible to like the human eye. And so we're seeing a lot more of machine learning, artificial intelligence come into play because you're able to really go through thousands of data points about individuals and lots of individuals quickly and without biases of what a hypothesis might be that you have, um, the machine is pretty much saying, hey, this is, this is com- something that's popping up here that you should pay attention to. So I think that's a little scary, like in, even in my community of industrial organization psychologists that we're, you know, our foundation is around, you have to have a hypothesis, you know, how do we make sense of that data and how do we um, make sure that it's not being misused in organizations? Because you can very quickly... Um, find that, you know, there are certain predictors of turnover that might actually be discriminatory. So how do you ensure that, you know, you don't put in place maybe a selection process to have people, you know, stay longer, that's not going to actually have bias towards a a protected group. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, so let's talk about machine learning a little bit. I mean, again, that's something that we talk about often here, but I don't know what our, our listeners will exactly know about machine learning. So just 
a little bit about Hi, it. Yeah, high level description and, and we can move on from there. Yeah. So I think um, some of the cool things about machine learning is it's pretty much everywhere, right? So if you listen to Pandora, you know, and you start liking, you know, liking songs, you know, as long the millions of people on Pandora are liking similar songs, you know, it's, it's understanding patterns about your personal behavior um, and then will predict what you want to see or hear here next. It's pretty popular marketing. Most of us will go do a Google search and then later we're on Facebook and we see all these ads about what we searched and it seems very big brothery. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the predictive side of, of machine learning is, but, but how it works is, you know, there's a lot of, of different statistical methods. Um, but what you do is you get a, a large data set of, you know, thousands of people and with machine learning, you're going to break that data set up into um, different chunks, right? So we might take the 1,000 people and, and maybe we'll hold out 200 to kind of test the data. But in the 800, we might cycle through trying to predict in eight different samples, you know, what is predicting this certain behavior? So let's talk about assessments, for example. Um, or we can talk about let's, uh, common ways being used today is in medical um, you know, diagnosis, right? So let's say, let's look at mammograms, right? And you might feed in 800 cases where you've got, you know, pictures and then the pictures have millions of features, which are little different characteristics and pixels. And then what you're doing is saying, did the person have breast cancer or not? Right. Um, and what we've, what the machine does is it starts to learn off these 800 cases, you know, separately kind of chunking that into pieces and creating an algorithm of here are the features that most predicted that this person had breast cancer. And then you test it on the last, the holdout 200 uh, test cases that you had, and you see how much were we on target or off target. So, you know, something like that, like just those types of medical devices are, are much um, better at identifying these little minuscule features that the human eye couldn't see. And so the same thing goes with people, right? Like in people behaviors, there are sometimes things we're not understanding that the machine might pick up a little quicker. Got it. Okay. And so, but, but you're still applying your, your IO psychology expertise to the outcome of that, right? It's not just, Hey, I feed in a bunch of data and what comes out the other end is, well, okay, that's what the answer yeah. is. You know, you're still applying. I would imagine you're still applying what you've what you've been studying, what your profession is. To yeah, that absolutely. It's, it's garbage in, garbage out, right? And probably the, the worst offender of garbage <laughs> is organizations' performance data um, and making sense of it. You know, you sometimes get top performers that are put into a really poor performing store, you know? So if you throw that in the algorithm, you're, you're actually, you know, now predicting, you're saying a top performer, those characteristics of a top performer are actually tied to a poor performance. So there's some things that, that as IOs, we need to be careful about. And then also all the different things that we're putting into that algorithm to make sure that we're not going to discriminate. So for example, if we look at commute to work, um, in some, some um, you know, retail companies, for example, they might only have their stores in very affluent neighborhoods. And so, mm -hmm. you know, people who have short commutes might actually stay longer, but now you're pretty much only going to hire people that are affluent, right? So that creates a you know potential discrimination um, towards other types of groups that may not be living in that that particular area. So it's tricky. So yeah, I mean, I, yeah, clearly you have to ask the right you have to ask the right question in the right way, understand what's in the data, and then understand the output of that data is. I mean, that's that's yeah, the job, right? Exactly. That's how, how it has to work. And our our clients, you know, they 
even though they might not 100% need to understand what's predictive, um, if I came back to them and I said, yeah, you know, for this sales job, people who don't influence and have, you know, they're slugs, they don't have high work pace, they're the best performers. They would, I'd be a laughing stock, right? right? So we really need to make sure that the, the data that we're seeing um, is also making sense yeah. at the same time. So along the, along those lines of data, what, what, and obviously you talk to a lot of, a lot of our clients and you, and you talk to them about metrics for their business. And what do you, what do you think the biggest, let's, let's just say three key metrics that, that a company should use when they, when they run their business as it relates to human capital or as it, as it relates to anything really? Yeah. Um, you know, that's a hard question because it really depends what business they're in, right? So if they're into the business of innovating, you know, you need to have um, the ability to have innovative products. But I mean, I would say for the most part, what we generally see is, you know, there's some kind of customer metric that's critical, right? Most companies have customers. Um, there's also how do you run efficiently that business? So some type of profitability um, KPI. And then finally, like, are we growing the business? So some type of revenue metric. Um, that's kind of generally what you see across organizations. I would say, um, you know, for like HR folks, uh, we generally see things like, you know, higher quality candidates. So is, you know, especially talent acquisition, are we bringing in better talent to our organization? Um, are we retaining and developing them? That's generally another metric. Um, and I think with the the cost of turnover and and how you know how our economy is right now, where it's very low unemployment rates, having vacancies are really costing a business a lot of money. And most people don't even track that, but that's probably the biggest cost of of somebody leaving an organization is you don't have somebody to do their job. So now you're really behind the ball. So hiring them faster is also an important piece. Yeah, I. Um... I, I love that you started that with the the general metrics, have a customer metric, have a growth metric, um, an, an efficiency metric, and then and then brought that down to more of an HR level. What's important, really, I think what's important to come out of a, of a conversation like this is, as a human capital professional, the decisions you make about the people you hire affect those higher level metrics, right? So turnover and costs could very well affect profitability, right? There is a direct connection between, between those things and human capital professionals have, have to recognize that and, and work toward that, right? Yeah. And I think that them not being afraid of the data mm -hmm. is critical, right? So there is a, a little bit of a gap in terms of HR professionals. You know, if you ask most of them, they say, and I think um, there's been some quotes on this online too, but they want to be in the business of human resources because they like people, right? They don't like numbers so much. But if you get someone that really likes people and understands numbers, then they can really prove their value to senior leadership and attain a seat at the table with those leaders. Because if they're trying to grow the business, you know, what better way, you know, people are your biggest talent, you know, they're their biggest asset. What better way as to improve productivity by 10%? That's where you see huge improvements yeah. in terms of financial uh, benefits. So um, uh, don't be afraid of the data is a, a great phrase and perfect lead into my next question, which was if somebody's starting their career, you know, what advice would you give to someone starting their career? It doesn't have to be in HR. It could be. Uh, but it also can't be, don't be afraid of the data because you just said that. <laughs> yeah, it won't be that. No, you know, I've, I've always been a um, 
don't ask for per, uh, permission, ask for forgiveness kind of person. Um, I also, I think that, you know, in organizations, and, and some of this might be the way people are raised, right, by their parents, right? Are they, if they fall down, do the parents rush to them and say, are you okay, right? Or do they say, get up, you know, come on, you're fine. Um, so I do think solving problems and being a fixer is is a critical skill set. And when you see, you know, I would tell somebody that when you're in an organization and you see that there's a problem, you know, you can sit there and complain. You can tell your manager. You can, you know, whine about it. You can, um, you know, say, hey, let's, we need to fix this. But you don't necessarily, like, drive it to actually get it fixed or or to make it successful. And so I think people always talk about ownership and, and you know, run it like it's your business. I, I truly believe that. And I don't believe that you have to be told that that's what you need to do. I think that as, you know, your strong work ethic that you bring to the table, when you see something that could be done better, you know, go own it and make it happen. And then if you if you step on toes, ask for forgiveness, right? right. I've never seen – I've seen the, the opposite of that hurt people more than, you know, somebody who actually is takes the initiative, gets it done – um, and really does it with good intentions, right? I think that's that's the key thing is, is you know having that grit, being able to see something, solve it, and not take that victim role, and not not wait to be told, right? Like that's a critical piece. Yeah, that's great advice. That's great advice. Good. What? Um, so one of the things that in in our relatively brief prep for this conversation, we talked a little bit about leadership development and coaching, and so you know are those are the types of things you just said, you know. Um, being a fixer and taking ownership and um, having having grit, running it like a business, are are those the kinds of things that you have coaching conversations with your team or or even maybe clients? Like you know, Carol, we need some help on on figuring out how to coach. How do you how do you approach those conversations? Because uh, I know that's that's a particular passion of yours, so I'd like you to talk a little bit about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, I think that. Um... You know, a lot of times problems at work are created because of misunderstandings, right? You know, I, I'm generally, I believe that most people have good intentions and that they try to do the right thing. Um, but, you know, when somebody's at a meeting, so for example, if, or if somebody took that initiative and stepped on a toe, you know, assuming that that person is just trying to take your credit for you or they're trying to make you look bad, like those are assumptions people make, right? And, you know, my belief is that as as leaders, we have to be able to have And if there is something that is upsetting, um, before assuming, you have a dialogue and you talk about, hey, you know, tell me a little bit about what happened or what, you know, what are you trying to accomplish with this? Let's, let me hear what, you know, your goals were. And so I, I think a great book is um, Crucial Conversations because I do think it really sets people up to uh, open up a dialogue that's a win-win for everyone where, you know, you get the true intention of what that person's trying to do out there and you put away those assumptions. And I would say that that is out of all the feedback I give people, you know, that's one of the top ones is their ability to really have a conversation with someone that goes well and, um, where they both see each other's perspectives. And most of the time they both want the same goal. Um, so it's, it's, that's definitely, I think one of the most critical pieces in terms of leadership and, and being able to, to really progress in your career. Yeah. Seeing the ability to articulate and see the same goal is, is incredibly important. And and I think from a business perspective, you you outline, you outline the metrics, right? The customer metric, the efficiency metric, when people think of those as goals, people have to understand the reasons behind those 
and and the data that goes into those into into generating those. Yeah, that's really important. Great, and thanks for mentioning crucial conversations. That's a that's a great not only listener tip, but it is a great book. So thanks for yeah, being for that. sure. Yeah. All right, well, that we've come to the end of our conversation. It was easier than you thought it would be. It wasn't as crucial of a conversation, Jason. (laughs) Well, thanks. I want to thank you, Carol, for taking the time to do this. It's really, really fun. And uh, and I know our listeners will benefit from that for sure. Awesome. Well, I appreciate appreciate it as well. Great. And um, I'd just like to thank everybody who's listening for listening to the Talent Playbook podcast. It's fun to do. We will have more of these. That is for sure. Um, thanks also goes to uh, Charles Summers, our producer sitting over there, manning the uh, manning the computer, making sure that it all goes well. So thanks, everybody. And we look forward to another episode. Bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit C-SuiteRadio.com.